And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Benjamin Lewin with us. His book is called Inside Science. Just came out. It's available to you. His Twitter feed is linked up at coasttocoastam.com. I understand you're an expert in resveratrol. Uh, no, I publish papers on it, but I wouldn't call myself an expert. <laughs> Are you, do, do you, uh, you're an expert on wine, though, aren't you? I do. I write books about wine as well as science. How'd you get into was that, was that a hobby? Uh, it started as a hobby, and then after I left Cell, I thought I'd do something completely different, and I wrote about wine full-time for several years, in fact, until I started writing Inside Science. Wine, wine is, a, is, is a challenge like science is a challenge. You're trying to understand why a wine tastes like it, like it does, what they did to make it that way, um, I write a series of books on wine, and I write a series of guides to classic wine regions. And um, I find it in some ways very similar to science. I mean, I approach it in the same sort of way. Uh, what's going on? Let's try and understand it. When I said resveratrol, some probably in the audience said, what? Can you explain what that is? It's a compound found in red wine, and it seems to have an effect on prolonging life if you give it to mice, for example. Um, the problem in trying to drink red wine in order to get enough resveratrol to extend human life is that you would die first of cirrhosis of the liver. <laughs> you'd get drunk, the, and you'd be drunk doing you it, would. right? You would. The, the, amount, the amounts are very small, um, but it, it seems to have some good protective effects. But as I say, the amounts in wine are very small. Science is fantastic. I mean, I loved biology in school, Benjamin. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was fun. Um, all kinds of biology, whether it was dissecting frogs or playing around with chemistry, and just it was just fantastic. I love it. Are, are we getting our younger people still interested in science? Yes, but we're not teaching it in a way that encourages people to believe that it's exciting. You know, it's what you go through, for example, as as a pre med student is a terrible mass of learning masses and masses of data and you you sort of lose sight of what's exciting and why it's interesting so I, I worry about the way science is taught if it's taught properly it's a great challenge as I said earlier it's a, it's a subversive influence that you ought to uh, ought to attract young people but if it's just taught as you know here is a huge amount of information you have to know then it sort of becomes dead I've met a lot of people from the country of India, and it seems like they are really pumping out some intelligent scientists and stuff. Is that just uh, a feeling I have, or is there some truth behind that? I can't answer that, but they've, they've always had a tradition of high education, and uh, they don't, of course, have the resources of the United States, but there have been some top scientists who are Indian by origin, working in the United States or in England, for that matter. When we started the program, we started talking about artificial intelligence. How far can that go? It's a really good question. Um, putting it another way, the question is, will we ever get to the singularity? The singularity meaning the point at which an artificial intelligence program has intelligence and capabilities equal to, equal to a human person. Um, nobody knows. There are people who believe that the singularity will happen in the next 10 or 20 years, and there are people who believe that it's chimeric, that it will never happen. Uh, I don't have an answer. I think it's a great question, though. 
All right, let's take some calls for you as they line up. Wayne in Tacoma, Washington, on the wild card line. Hey, Wayne, go ahead. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, Sir George, uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, yes, I read that uh, back in 96 uh, that original blood vessels and proteins as well as other biological material was found inside of dinosaur bones, and they suggested that the bones were not 90 million years old since the half-life of uh, these biomolecules are maximum of about a million years. And incredibly, wow. uh, they've now found original dinosaur DNA and chromosomes. And, of course, we have modern dinosaurs. Uh, you know, snakes really haven't changed that much except for size. And birds. Same with alligators and uh, crocodiles and hippopotamus and rhinos. Those are old dinosaurs. What are your thoughts on that, Ben? Well, Aging, aging bones is something you can do pretty well with radioactive dating. Um, I hadn't heard that any dinosaur DNA had been discovered, but if it had been, it would really be interesting to, to know what its sequence was. Um, people have tried to sort of backtrack from the descendants of dinosaurs to dinosaurs, but not very successfully because we don't really understand what changes occurred genetically. I think it would be... A, a long haul to understand dinosaurs in terms of present genetics. We have found a lot of dinosaur bones. Can you get DNA from that? Um, it's difficult. They're pretty old. You can get DNA from Neanderthal bones, for example, but they are not nearly as old as dinosaurs. I think the chance of getting DNA from dinosaur bones, given their age, is pretty remote. So you need the bone marrow, I guess, right? Yeah, which is probably which by now will have deteriorated. Charles in Sebastopol, California, is with us. Welcome to the show. Hi, Charles. Hi there, and hi, Benjamin. This is a great show. Thank um, you. So I wanted to offer this idea. I see the intersection of AI, quantum computing, and genetic engineering. That intersection is like an evolutionary threshold, and all those together are vastly more compelling than any one of those by themselves. And the reason I say this is because uh, quantum computing is extraordinarily good at looking at huge data sets and finding patterns. AI is really good at looking for what I might call adaptive resonance, probing future problems or things that could be solved. And then, of course, genetic engineering relies on the ability to simulate or in some way model the artifacts or the process of genetic engineered organisms. You can simulate the physiology. In fact, there's an entire science called silico biology, which wraps itself around that process. So as I see those three things coming together, to me, that's a major evolutionary threshold. It changes the entire metric of how we're evolving as a species. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Well, well said, Charles. Go ahead, Benjamin. There's, there's a great potential for AI here. It's so far in biology where it had a real impact is, is on protein structure. We can now analyze protein structure better using AI than using conventional techniques of analysis. And the people who have done this with proteins would like to extend it to cells. The idea would be to make what you might call a virtual cell in which you could, using AI, create the equivalent of a cell, and then you could do things with it. You could test ideas on it um, much more easily than doing that with um, real cells, which obviously are much more difficult to handle. It, there's, there's a great potential there for uh, simulating a cell 
and trying to understand how it reacts to different circumstances and environments. But it hasn't happened yet, of course. It's, we're just at the beginning. With an electron microscope, Benjamin, how far can we see uh, in terms of uh, cells and things like that? You can see pretty small objects. Um, a, cell, a cell actually would be quite big in terms of an electron microscope. Uh-huh. You can see the surface um, pretty well. You can see the interior pretty well. Um, I think with an electron microscope, you're looking really to go inside the cell rather than just look at cells from the outside. What does cancer look like under a microscope? Um, cancer cells tend, well, they tend to, to look like very simple round cells growing and dividing for the most part. Um, most cells in the body are what we call differentiated. They have specific shapes, um, specific, specific um, for, forms, and cancer cells tend to lose those forms. They become de-differentiated, and they are able, therefore, to grow more quickly and to divide. If you put a normal cell or a healthy cell, if that may be, next to a cancer cell, would you see the difference? Um, under under something like an electron microscope, yes, you probably would. You would. Well, I mean, I would guess the cancer cell would look discombobulated or something like That's that. That's a fair description. Next up, Catherine in British Columbia, Canada. Hi, Catherine. Good evening, George. Benjamin, I, I, I'm really concerned about the the ice in the Antarctic and all that melting, and I'm, 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 I'm wondering if it's like a Pandora's box of bacteria. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Thank you. I, don't think, I don't think it's got anything to do with bacteria. It's just due to temperatures getting higher. Temperature goes higher, ice melts. Yeah, that's right, and then when it gets colder, it comes back. Simple as that. What would you say, Benjamin, if you could solve one dilemma of biology with a magic wand, what would that be? Oh. What would you tackle? Well, I would like to tackle consciousness. I'd like to know why, why we think, why we are conscious. And where does it come from? Yes, where does it come from? Um, what aspect of biology is responsible for it? And we have no idea at all which is why it's such an enormous challenge. My aunt, who's not with us anymore, was a psychiatrist, and she went to Oxford University and uh, came back to the States and devoted her entire practice of psychiatry into investigating telep uh, telepathy and ESP. Mm -hmm. She wrote a book called Breakthrough to Creativity, and uh, she was obsessed with that. She wanted answers like you do, she wanted to know where did this come from? Where does consciousness come from? Where does where does intuition come from? How, how does the brain do this? Or is is it not the brain? Maybe it's something else. I think it's the brain, all right, but we have no idea how that how it how how we do it. It's really something. I've always said we're in a wireless network connected with each other, and uh, our thought patterns cross sometimes through this network and everything else. Not a bad theory. Hmm. Oh, difficult to prove. Very. Ron in Tennessee is with us. Hey, Ronnie, go ahead. Yes, sir, Mr. Norrie. I, I sure appreciate being on. Um, Thank you, Brian. I've had some comments for the doctor. Um, the theory of relativity, 
that everything is consisting of mass and energy. Um, is there more than that? I'm thinking there might be because I've had some experiences that I can't explain, and I want to respect the doctor's beliefs. So I don't want to go religious and all that on him, but it's, you know he's very intelligent. He may be able to shed some light on this why I went somewhere and experienced some things and some consciousness that I don't have on earth. I'll just let you go ahead and comment. Do you follow that, Benjamin? Um, partly. I, I think the general question here really is to what it, how far can we explain biological phenomena, including consciousness, including the way we think, so in terms of the laws of physics and will they explain everything? So, the answer is, as far as we know, the laws of physics and chemistry are, are what control our bodies. Um, I don't personally believe in anything beyond that, but that's a matter of belief. It's not a matter of science. Well, that is so true. Will we ever get a breakthrough into consciousness? And if we do, what will it take? You know, the nature of a breakthrough is you can't predict what it will take. I, I can't think of any of the big scientific discoveries of the last sort of 20, 30, 40, 50 years which have been predictable in advance. They happened, and after they happened, this may have seemed obvious, but before they happened, we didn't know where it, we had no idea where it would come from. I don't, think, I don't think we have any idea where a breakthrough there would come from. It would be great to have one, but I, have, I haven't got a clue, to be honest. Vaughn is with us in Beaumont, Texas, east of the Rockies. Hi, Vaughn. Hello. Um, you posed some real good questions, George. Uh, Thank you, sir. Yeah. Um, anyway, he mentioned something uh, about uh, resveratrol. Uh, anyway, I was supposed to have some coming in today, but it's synthetic, and I had never heard of that before. And I even thought about getting it tested to be sure that it's pure. It's supposed to be greater than 99%. Uh, before I get to my other questions, I just want to know what do you, what do we think of uh, that? Is it in liquid or capsule form? It's capsule form. What do you think of capsules of resveratrol, Benjamin? Synthetic. I I don't see why if a synthetic resveratrol, it doesn't really matter whether it's synthetic, whether it's made chemically, or whether it was isolated biologically. It's the same stuff. It should work the same way. Just depends on how much you need. What's your question, Vaughn? But anyway, uh, vaccines uh, has DNA and barium and uh, formaldehyde in there. Uh, what do we think about that, uh, you know, the effect on the body? And also, uh, uh, there was an experiment done with old and young rats uh, hooked up the circulatory systems, and the young rats began to get older, and the older rats began to get younger. What was responsible for that? I'm not really sure how you measure young and old in those circumstances. I'm not sure I, be I believe that as a result. Vaccines we've been using for... A long years. time, a long and, time. You know, there are now a lot of diseases, take, take smallpox, take polio. They'd still be rampant and killing people in large numbers if we didn't have vaccines. So I don't think I would worry about vaccines with 100 years of experience we have been doing pretty well. If a vaccine comes out too quickly, like I think it may have with COVID, but it seems that they've had a couple of years now to refine it, 
and they seem to be coming out with stuff that's even better now. But uh, the early ones that come out, are you very successful about them? There's always a risk of side effects. And there was a new technique used to generate the first COVID vaccines. But it seems to have been very effective. The vaccine seems to have worked. Um, It's entirely possible that some of the side effects that are reported as being due to the vaccines aren't really due to them at all, but are due to people actually getting COVID. You know, which seems to be a really nasty virus. Oh my God! With a horrible. lot of unpredictable side effects. Yeah. I mean, given that, you're better off being vaccinated, and even if the vaccine isn't as thoroughly tested as you would like, than running the risk of getting COVID. Got about a minute and a half before the break. Then we'll come back and take final calls, Benjamin. What are your next projects? What are you working on? I'm writing another book called The Ascent of Science. The idea is that science is a dominant intellectual activity in society. And I want to ask, how did that happen? Why did it happen? And will it continue? You seem to enjoy writing. I do, actually. Good for you. Good for you. Is the Cell Journal still out, or did you stop? Cell Journal is still out, and it's still a leading journal. Good for you. Good for you. You were at the National Cancer Cancer Institute uh, for about a year back in the 70s. Two years, actually, during Nixon's war on cancer, if you remember that. Are we making strides getting rid of that disease? Yes, we are. But it's not a single disease. So the notion you can cure cancer is a bit naive. We can cure this cancer or that cancer. They're different ones, yeah. Yes, we have to tackle them one by one because each cancer has a different cause. Which makes it even more difficult, but you're right. We have to go after each one separately. But there's been some great progress. I mean, childhood leukemia, for example, is nothing like the disease it used to be. It's mostly curable, which is great. Obviously, there are cancers, brain cancers especially, that are very difficult to cure. So you you can't just say, we're going to cure cancer. You can say, we're going to tackle cancers one by one. Um, That's a much more realistic prospect. That's the way to do it. All right, stay with us, Benjamin. We've got to take a short break. We'll come back and take some final calls with you, Benjamin Lewin, with us. His book is called Inside Science. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie back with Benjamin Lewin. Our final segment, his book is called Inside Science, Revolution in Biology and Its Impact. His site to get to him is on Twitter. You don't have a website, Benjamin, yet? Um, I have a website for, for wine, actually, but not for science. You want to give out your wine website? Go ahead. It's winespecific.com. That's a blog on wine. Super. Let's go to the phones. We'll go to our international line to start. Max is with us in Mexico. Welcome to the show. Hi, Max. How are you doing, George? Wonderful, my friend. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. It's a wonderful evening down here in Mexico. Excellent. Go ahead, Max. So, uh, Benjamin, so nice to talk to you. I have a question. Um, I am a brewer. So my question has to do with biotechnology. It's a bit of a mundane, if you may, uh, topic, which is beer. That, to me, is very important. So I have a question. Uh, But first, I would like to say that uh, in the brewing world, there's a saying that I like a lot that says that uh, brewers uh, don't make beer. You know, brewers make instances in which a beer can happen. In other words, what really makes a beer or any alcoholic beverages, uh, for that matter, is yeast. And um, one of the inconveniences of the, the alcoholic industry, from an economical standpoint, is that 
there's a fermentation process that takes days, weeks, and even months to complete. And you would imagine that uh, it's a it's a reality for every uh, you know brewery or distillery in the world. So my question is the following: um, even though fermentation is a very traditional kind of uh, you know old school and even alchemic process for us, honestly, if you could brew a beer and or whatever and have it in in a day. Uh, it will require that the yeast, the yeast metabolism, it's accelerated in such a way that complex sugars are, com you know, uh, simple sugars are, uh, complex sugars, sorry, are converted uh, into into alcohol. So, do you think it's possible, theoretically and practically, that one day you would just sip someone, uh, you know, a beer or whatever to ferment? And it takes a day rather than weeks because that would transform economically uh, worldwide uh, the industry. Uh, what's your take? I know more about wine than about beer, but the process is basically the same. It's fermentation by yeast. Um, in wine, a fermentation typically takes a couple of weeks, maybe one week, maybe two weeks. Speeding it up would be difficult. You can, of course, ferment at a slightly higher temperature. That will speed things up a bit. But you, there's a limit to how quickly you can make yeast divide. I mean, basically, in order for fermentation to, be, go, to, to, to happen more quickly, the yeast would have to divide more quickly. That's going to be difficult. I think you can... People have different strains of yeast for fermenting wine, and they have different results. Some are faster, some are slower. Um, they, they, they produce different properties in the wine. You could, if you wanted, try to get some that would reproduce a little faster, but I do not think you would be able to get um, down from sort of one week to one day. I think that's beyond the cap capability. You can't make these double that fast, I don't think. There are some uh, biological processes that you just can't speed up, Benjamin, right? That's right. I mean, there, there are limits to how fast you can go. Max, thanks for being on the program. Appreciate your call. Jamie's with us in New York, first-time caller. Hi, Jamie. Hi. I'm a huge fan of yours, George. Thank you so much. Thank um, you. And, um, really, thanks for everything you do. You're amazing. And um, thank you to your, your guest uh, also for taking my question. Um, so uh, I'm a huge nerd for science. I love science. <laughs> I, I mean, no disrespect to you with this question. But... Um, the University of Virginia, for 50 years, has been studying um, near-death experiences. They have a whole program dedicated to it, um, and that's a very respected university. Um, there are thousands of people worldwide, just countless cases of people who have been clinically dead, no brain activity, one in particular, Dr. Eben Alexander, uh, you know, a brain surgeon, and they come back and they swear that consciousness survives beyond death, and that the brain is actually a filter of consciousness. Um, a lot of them have come back and they say it has nothing to do with religion. It's, uh, it's more of a, a science sort of um, another realm they go to. Some of them do come back with religious stories, whatever. The, the question I have for you is there are thousands of cases of people that have literally been clinically dead and brought back and have just life-changing experiences. There are just countless books about it. Like I said, there's a whole study at UVA. How can we have all of this data out there and scientists just ignoring it? Why is that not considered data to review and examine, especially when you yourself are so interested in the study of consciousness and understanding it? Because there's a principle in science that experiments have to be reproducible, 
and these are basically anecdotal. It doesn't matter how many of them you have. The problem is you can't reproduce it on a regular basis. You can't, I mean, you wouldn't really want to put someone into a near-dead state and bring them back again. That would not be a very ethical way to behave. And unless you can do an experiment, scientists basically won't accept it. The principle of science is we have to, be, we have to understand what happened and we have to be able to reproduce it. It doesn't matter how many cases you have. Um, scientists are not going to accept that as being something they can investigate because they have no means to investigate it. Uh, some, some, some years ago, one Nobel Prize winner in, described a category of science called trans-science, when there are things you would like to investigate but cannot investigate them because of ethical questions. Um, and this would fall into that category. Do you think, uh, as science has talked about, the brain may exist a little bit longer than they think after near-death appearances? What if it lasts even longer? When you die, what if your brain just still continues to function? Well, it can't if it doesn't have any blood supply. That's what they say, but who knows, right? I would be very skeptical. Jamie, thanks for your call. Next up, Cornelius is with us in Louisiana. Hey there, Mr. White. Hey there, George. I, I want to tell you something real quick. I'm probably going to be gone for the next month or two, so you won't hear my voice, so I'll I don't want you to think I disappeared like poor Annie did in Alabama. All right. Where are you going? Well, I just got to take care of some business. And stuff. All right. I, no, no need to tell us. I understand. But, but just pray for me. That's the main thing. I, I hear Big Ben. I don't think he believes in God or anything like that. So this is what I wanted to say. My dad was a biologist, and he was also a funeral home director. And, uh, George, there's one more thing I wanted to tell you before I talk to Big Ben. Um, on the YouTube channel, Cornelius Lawson White, there's a demon in our city council meeting, and it was recorded. So if you want to see that, that's August the 13th, Cornelius Lawson White, demon in city council meeting. Is, is, that, the one they, is that the one they hold you away? No, no, no. This was recent. That was last year. Okay. So, no, it's not when they hauled me away. All right. But anyway, Big Ben, my question for you, because like I said, my dad was a biologist and a funeral home director, and he saw a whole lot of different things like what Jamie was talking about. God can't be qualified by science, and they call me the God Guns and Gold Man, the Bible Bullets and Beans Man. And I understand what you're saying, but Sir Isaac Newton if you look at him, he believed in God and everything, and he was a scientist and everything. And a lot of scientists at the beginning, they were godly men and stuff. And you look at Methuselah. Methuselah was almost 900 years old. So at the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, we lived longer. And, you know, we live a shorter amount of time now. So I don't know if you've ever looked at the Bible or if you've ever read the Bible, but it would be good if you would read the Bible because it will give you direction and everything. So God bless you, George. God bless Coast to Coast. And take it easy, Big Ben. All right. Good luck to you, Cornelius. We will say some prayers for you while you're away for a month. Uh, ben, uh, you can comment on that if you want. Well, some scientists are religious. Some scientists are not religious. There's no reason why you can't be a scientist and believe in God. There's no reason why you can't be a scientist and be an atheist. 
They are two different belief systems, and I respect everybody's belief, whatever it is. You know, I still have not found a physicist or astrophysicist who could explain to us exactly how the Big Bang occurred. Nobody knows. No, and the fascinating thing about the Big Bang is that it may be that the laws of physics were different then. Well, if they were different, we have absolutely no means of going back to understand what happened. It was, you know, the laws of physics weren't the same or may not have been the same during the Big Bang. So we are really stuck. John is with us in Madison, Wisconsin, east of the Rockies. Welcome, John. Hi, thanks. Um, I've had scary thoughts about goats with eight eyes that can crawl walls when they splice the uh, DNA of spiders and the goats. Oh, geez. I thought that was pretty crazy. I just wondered whether that kind of thing can go off the rails. I don't. You could splice DNA from different organisms together, but they won't. It won't be functional. It won't do anything. It won't work, will it? It won't work. Can't do that. But you can splice human DNA to human DNA. It will work. Um. Well, work. Work is a relative term. You can modify DNA in such a way that a gene will have different properties. Sure. That that's technically feasible. But I think you can rest easy about the notion of mad scientists creating weird organisms or so on, because it's just not going to be compatible. It isn't going to work. Whereabouts, Benjamin, are all these experiments occurring? Where do they have their laboratories? Are they in universities, hospitals? Where are they? Mostly in universities, sometimes in separate research institutes. But I think Probably 80, 90% of the work is done in universities. What about private or public companies? Are they involved in this? Companies don't do much basic research. Companies will do research in applying something basic to develop a product. Um, for example, a university might, I mean, going back historically a little bit, you, the, the, the sequence of the insulin gene was worked out in a university setting. The people who then tried to use that to make insulin protein, so we had an alternative to extracting from animals, did it in a commercial setting. There's a difference between basic research when you're just basically looking into things because they are curious and you want to know the answer, and applied research when you want to develop a specific product for some commercial activity. Um, the, first, the first is done mostly in universities. The second is done mostly in a commercial setting. We're taking calls with Benjamin Lewin. His book is called Inside Science. Deacon is with us now in Sacramento, California. Welcome to the program, Deacon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, just want to ask a couple of questions. Um, you know, he said he don't believe in Jesus, don't believe in God and all that stuff there, you know, the Lord. Um, then what does he use as his, one, as his moral compass, you know? What do you use to uh, know what's right and wrong? And what do you feel about, you know, these LGBTQRTS, uh, you know, uh, changing sexes and, and, and you don't believe in cloning and they do human augmentation? And then three, George Norrie, you know, he's always talking about paranormal ghosts, uh, devils and demons, you know. That's in the Bible, man. Well, what do you think about George? Is he uh, loony? <laughs> or do, you, do you respect him or what's the deal? And I'll... Get off the phone and listen to your answer. All right, take a few of those, Benjamin, and have some fun with those. I'm not sure what the what the question is, but but 
But but I would say that I respect everybody's beliefs. Whether I personally believe in God is a complete irrelevance. Um, people can believe in God or people cannot believe in God. That's up that's up to every individual to decide what they want to believe in. And I don't think that has any impact on science, and I don't think science has any impact on that. That's a matter of belief, and I, as I say, I respect everybody's belief. Well, that's fair enough, fair enough. And you don't think I'm a lunatic, do you? Do I think who's a lunatic? Me. Uh, why should I think you're a lunatic? Well, he asked that question. I assume you don't think I am. I don't think believing in religion makes somebody a lunatic, if that's what you're asking. That's, uh, people are entitled to their beliefs, absolutely. I, I suppose I would say you are a lunatic if you believe in something that is manifestly not true. If you believe the earth is flat, you are a lunatic, because we know the earth is round. It is not flat, and it is not 6,000 years old. No, neither. It's we not quite that. round either, but we let know. that pass. We've got a minute left, Benjamin. Tell folks where they can get your book, how they can track you on Twitter, and what your website is for the wine. The book is called Inside Science. It's available on Amazon and in bookshops. And it's basically an attempt to say how science really works. Um, I have a Twitter account, which is um, at Ben Lewin MW. And I have a site, a blog on wine, when I write about visits to wineries and experiences in wine, which is called winespecific.com or lewinonwine.com. What's your projection on your next book? Um, the Ascent of Science. I'm going to hopefully publish it sometime around this time next year, maybe. Well, you're invited back, my friend, okay? Thank you very much. Okay, great, Benjamin. And Tom needs to talk to you, our producer. Thank you very much for a fascinating couple hours. In a moment, Paul Selig joins us. Paul is an expert on spirit guides and channeling, and when we ask him questions about the spirit world, he gets answers from the spirit world, and they talk through him. So you'll hear a distinct change in his voice. That'll be later on tonight on Coast to Coast AM.